Well, I was watching the TV a few years ago and uh, doing what I sometimes do, and that is just flick, flicking through the, the channels, uh, looking for something interesting to look at. And there was a comedy that was on, and the, in this comedy, the, the people were at church. They were at church, and they were sitting down, uh, listening to the Bible being read. And what was being read of the Bible was more or less what we had being read today. <laughs> and as you were watching it, it was, it was sort of funny. Um, it, it was, you, you could see by the look on the, the face of the, uh, the main man there that he was bored. And, and I guess you were meant to get the idea that, you know, church is a bit weird when you hear this type of thing. And maybe you're a visitor here today and you've thought that as well. Uh, genealogies can be difficult. They have difficult names. It can be difficult to concentrate on them. Um, you know it's God's word, and so you should read it. So, you know, in our, when we're doing our Bible reading during the week, we, we come to passages like this and we think, actually, this is the word of God, so I'm supposed to be reading this. But we may not be sure what to do with it or, or how to apply it. Now, if you have children, how would you teach this to your children? What do we do there? I like to give my children a one-sentence summary on each book of the Bible to help them in their Bible reading. And so when they were reading the book of Leviticus, I would say to them, uh, the, these are the laws about how a holy God is going to live with a sinful people. And so they'd, they'd get some idea as to what that book is about and they could then put the pieces together and understand what they were reading. Uh, it, if, you're, uh, if you're a Sunday school teacher, would you teach the genealogies as part of Sunday school? Uh, if you're a new Christian, why should you read it? Well, I want to say there are reasons and purposes to genealogies. So, for instance, if I had uh, a Tasmanian First Nations person here, an Aboriginal person here, and they were reading out their genealogy, I assume that you would see the relevance of that. I, I doubt anyone would make a comedy of that. Uh, it, it, it would signify to us a special connection to the land. It would clarify a special legal status with a whole range of implications. So there actually are reasons and purposes for genealogies, legitimate reasons. In the Bible, they show connections. They authenticate people. They show a context. They show that events are historical. And if you know the names in the story, so if you know the names in the genealogy, they tell a story. Well, this is how the book of Chronicles begins and, how it's, uh, and what it's famous for. And over the next three weeks, God willing, as I uh, visit you, we're going to be looking at the whole of 1 and 2 Chronicles and looking at the three large sections in it. And the first section is chapters 1 to 9, and these are the genealogies. Now, as we come to Chronicles, <clears throat> I want us to think of its place in the canon. That is, where does it fit in the Bible? Because the Bible is a large book made up of a collection of many books. And where does Chronicles actually come? 
Now, in our Bibles, it comes sort of about a third of the way through from the beginning. And it comes after the book of Kings. And many people might think that Chronicles and Kings, they're sort of the same type of books. Um, and that's because we've arranged our books in terms of the chronology of the story they talk about. However, if you were to read a Hebrew Bible, and I've got one here, you can come and have a look at it. In the Hebrew Bible, Chronicles is actually the very last book. So for us, it's one third of the way through. In the Jewish Bible, it's the very last book. Now, why is it the very last book for them? Well, it's because in terms of the Old Testament, it appears to be the last book that was written. So if you have a look with me in your Bibles at uh, 1 Chronicles chapter 2, verse, uh, sorry, chapter 3, verse 17, you'll see that there's a genealogy of Jehoiachin the captive. Now, Jehoiachin the captive is talking about the king who was conquered by King Nebuchadnezzar from Babylon and taken away. And we'll look at that in a little bit more detail. But notice in verse 17, there's the descendants of Jehoiachin. So this is the king who's been taken away into Babylon. And it goes for, uh, right down to verse 24, another seven generations after him. So, the, so if we just let this book date itself, we see that this book is actually a long time after the Jews have returned from exile. The, the, um, the exile is when the, uh, the Babylonians take the Jews into Babylon, out, uh, from Israel into Babylon, and the return comes after that. And the book of Chronicles comes a long, long time after they've actually returned back to the promised land. In fact, the book of Chronicles is almost poking the New Testament. It's a book that's starting to poke at the New Testament, starting to, to almost get right to where the New Testament is. So I think it's really helpful for us to understand where this book comes. As I said, the Jews have been under judgment for their sinfulness to God. They've been taken away to Babylon. They've now returned. They've built the temple under Ezra. They've built the wall under Nehemiah. And now it's a long, long time after all those things have happened. And the question that the book of Chronicles is answering is, what are we doing? What are we doing here? We've come back, we've built the temple, we've built the wall. There is no Messiah. Nothing's really happening. We're just plodding away. That's what the book of Chronicles is addressing. And it's going to answer this question for the Jews who have returned and are wondering, what's it all about? What are we doing here? What are we doing in this land of Israel? It's going to answer it by taking them right back to the very beginning. It's going to tell the story from Adam right up to the, near their present day. So this is God's word to his people as they are wondering, what's it all about? What are we meant to be doing as God's people? So it's a great book because there are many of the questions that we can have as well. So let's have a look at what it says. Look at uh, chapter 1, verse 1. Chapter 1, verse 1. 
Adam, Seth, Enosh, Kenan, Mahalalel, Jared, Enoch, Methuselah, Lamech, and Noah. So where does Chronicles begin? It takes you right back to the beginning. And the first word there is Adam. Now, I guess any of us who, if, if we were doing the reading today, we would have got that name right, wouldn't we? Would have got that one right, Adam. Now, why begin with Adam? Well, because when you say the word Adam, you're actually talking about God's purpose in creation for humanity. That is, why did God make us? And what we see when we think of Adam is that God made us for blessing, God made us in his image, and God made us with a purpose. That is to bring glory to God and to share in the life of God, the tree of life, and to worship God. This is what we see of God's purpose for Adam. In fact, it's, it's why God made you to bring glory to him and to share in his life. But as we follow through this genealogy, notice where it ends. Look at verse 17, sorry, 13. Canaan was the father of Sidon, his firstborn, and of the Hittites, Jebusites, Amorites, Girgashites, Hivites, and some other names. Now, if you're familiar with the Bible, you'll know those names fairly well as well, won't you? They're familiar names. And notice what they are. They're not individuals. These are now nations. So it's gone from one man to the nations of the world. That's how this first genealogy works. And so we see here that God is the one God over all the nations, and that from one man God made every nation of men that they would perhaps reach out for him and seek him. That's what the Apostle Paul brings out in Acts 17. But if you know those names, you'll also know that these are names that sacrificed their children, that were into idolatry, and they represent humanity. That is, the nations of the world have gone astray. God's made us for his glory. God's made us to serve him. And instead of having life and giving glory to God, the nations of the world have turned away from God, given themselves over to sin, and there is death. Now, Israel needs to know this. Israel needs to know, as they're wondering, what are we doing in this world? As you wonder, what are we doing in this world? You need to know the story that God made us with a purpose, but that the world has turned away from God and given itself over to sin and idolatry and wickedness. This is this first one. This is the first genealogy. This is the world that Israel lives in. Now, the next genealogy moves on to Abraham. Look at verse 28. The sons of Abraham, Isaac and Ishmael. Now, why do we move on to Abraham? We've got all these different nations of the world. Why move on to Abraham? Well, it's because of Genesis chapter 12. Genesis 12. It's because in and amongst the nations of the world, God makes a promise. He says to Abraham, I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. This is, sorry, Genesis 12, verse 2. I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. 
I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you I will curse, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. And so in this sinful world, in a world turned away from God, God speaks to the man Abraham and says to Abraham, I'm going to speak to the world through you. I'm going to turn you into a nation and you will be a blessing to the world. You'll have your own land and the blessing that I have for the world is going to come through you. Now again, this is what Israel needs to remember. That in the world that's turned away from God, God chose Abraham. Now the genealogy continues with Abraham's children because God's promise to Abraham, as we'll read more in Genesis, uh, he becomes many nations and these nations are spelt out. There's the nations that come from Ishmael in verse 29. These are the descendants, uh, the, the, these were their descendants. Nebaioth, the firstborn of Ishmael. And then it lists out all of Ishmael's descendants who themselves become tribes. Then it moves on to Keturah, who is um, Abraham's concubine after the death of his wife. And it lists out all the nations that come from her. And then, of course, it moves over to Isaac and Esau and begins to talk about the nations that come from them. So we see that God's promise to Abraham is fulfilled. He becomes these nations. But when you look at these names, they actually tell us something else as well, don't they? Because there was Ishmael, Abraham's firstborn, but God chose Isaac. And so it's a story of God choosing one nation in particular. We see this again with Israel, sorry, sorry with Esau and Jacob in the genealogy where there's two twins born almost the same time, but one comes out first, he's the firstborn, but God gives the promise to Jacob, who becomes Esau. And so the genealogy which comes from Abraham shows us God's faithfulness to Abraham, but it also shows us God's sovereign choice. And that is that God has chosen the nation of Israel amongst the nations of the world. God has chosen the nation of Israel amongst the nations of the world. Come back with me to Exodus chapter 19 and have a look at the job description, the mission for Israel. Exodus 19, uh, verse 5. Now, if you obey me, so this is God speaking to the Israelites at Mount Sinai after he's brought them out of Egypt and he's just telling them who they are as a people. He says, now, if you obey me fully and keep my commandment, then out of all the nations, you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So notice how the nation of Israel is described. They are a priestly nation. Now what does a priest do? A priest stands between the people and God. That's what a priest does. And the nation of Israel is a priestly nation who stand between the nations of the world and God. 
And so we must realize the special place the nation of Israel has in and amongst God's plans. I want to read you now a few verses. Um, you, you can look these up if you're a quick Bible flicker, but I'm going to do them really quick. But I just want you to, to feel this because I, I think there's a common mistake that we can make as Christians. Let me read to you from Psalm 147, verse 19. He has revealed his word to Jacob, his laws and decrees to Israel. He has done this for no other nation. They do not know his laws. Let me read to you from Isaiah 49. Isaiah 49. I'm just going through the Bible in order of it, of it as it is with us. He said to me, You are my servant Israel, in whom I will display my glory. So how is God going to display his glory? Through the nation of Israel. Let me read to you from John. We'll just do two more. Um, oh no, three more. So John, we'll go to quickly uh, John chapter 4. This is Jesus with the woman at the well. And notice how Jesus speaks about the nation of Israel. He's speaking to the woman at the well and he says, You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know. For salvation is from the Jews. Let me read to you from uh, Romans chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. Brothers, I could not address you as spiritual, but as worldly. Me in Sorry, 1 Corinthians, not just not Romans. Romans chapter 3. What advantage is there in being a Jew? Or what value is there in circumcision? Much in every way. First of all, they have been entrusted with the very words of God. I won't go on to any others, but in chapter 9, there's even more descriptions of how unique the nation of Israel is. Now, one of the mistakes I think we can make is we can sometimes think that all religions are the same, but in biblical terms, another mistake people can make is to think that all nations are the same. And this is not just how the Bible presents it. The nation of Israel has a special mission to represent God to this world, to bring his blessing to this world, to make God known to this world. Now, in chapter 2 of the genealogies, we start spelling out the nation of Israel in particular. So we've looked at from Adam to the nations of the world. Then we've looked at Abraham to the nation of Israel. And now when it comes to uh, the genealogies in the rest of the chapter, sorry, in the rest of the beginning of the book, we see that the different tribes of Israel are listed. There's Simeon and Reuben, Gad, Issachar, Naphtali, Manasseh, Ephraim, uh, Asher. And as you go through these, the genealogies place them back into their part of the promised land. And so what it shows us is that Israel is back in the land back in the land that God gave them, where they belong, and the mission for them continues. In particular, there's more space given to the tribes of Judah and Levi. Now, we're going to see more of that in the weeks to come, but Judah is where the kings of Israel come from, and in particular, the Messiah kings. The kings who are called the Messiahs 
they come from this tribe. And so this tribe is back in the land. The mission for Judah, the coming of the king, the coming of the Messiah, the mission remains. And for the priests, the priests who are serving at the temple, offering up the sacrifices so that uh, forgiveness of sins and God's presence may be on earth, that continues. And so you see, Chronicles is different to Ezra and Nehemiah. Ezra was about rebuilding the temple. Nehemiah was about rebuilding the wall. Chronicles is about rebuilding Israel's mission to the world. And it's saying to the Israelites, your mission continues. You are the people of God and your witness to God is to continue in this world. Now, I've really tried to look at that, and in our last 10 minutes now, I, I, I want us to think of it as Gentiles, because I really want us to look at this book and see what it would have meant for its original hearers, for its Jewish hearers, because that is who the book was first given to. And I assume most of us here are not Jewish. Some of you may be. I don't know. What about us who are not Jews? What does this book say to us who are not Jews? Well, in many ways it says similar things and some things are a bit different. When it begins with Adam, that's our beginning too. That is our beginning too. And I want to say God made you. God is your creator who has created you with the purpose of you living for him, of you giving glory to God, and you're receiving the life and the blessing of God. That is the purpose that God has for you in this world, for humanity. God made us. But as the genealogy shows, we, along with the nations of the world, in fact, we are these nations of the world, aren't we? We are these nations of the world. We've turned away from God. And I can tell you that even though our, our culture is so advanced and technologically advanced, it's a culture deliberately turning its back on God and deliberately defining what it means to be a human. It doesn't let the story of Adam and biology define what it means to be human anymore now, but humanity is being completely redefined by our culture, which is deliberately turning its back on God. So if anything, this genealogy speaks even more to our culture We've been banished from the presence of God and our world has been given over to sin and death. That's the world in which we live in. We're under the judgment of God. Now, into this world, God has spoken to the man Abraham. And we need to know that. That God has acted in this world and spoken to bring life and blessing to this world. And he's done it particularly through the nation of Israel, his chosen nation. You see, God has acted in this world, and to understand God's acts in this world, you have to know the history of Israel. If you want to understand how God has acted in this world, you need to know the history of Israel. Think about what we do at church every week as we read the Bible. The overwhelming majority of the Bible is about 
the nation of Israel. In fact, I would argue, this is for myself, I know a fair bit about my British history. I've been in Australia for many generations, but I've learnt something about my British history. But I know more about the history of Israel than I do about my British history. And I assume that that's the case for most of you here. That you know more about the ancient history of Israel and who the different kings were and everything than you do about your own culture. Now, why is that? Well, it's because God was particularly working in the history of Israel. And we need to, to read that history. And that's what the Bible does for us. Most of us also have biblical names. We have Israelite names. Many of us, probably about half of us in this room, would have Israelite names. You see, this is how God has spoken to the world. Now, this can result in the Jews being arrogant. And you see that in much of their writings in the intertestamental period between the Old Testament and the New Testament. You see that type of attitude. And Jesus really comes down on them hard for them being arrogant and thinking that being God's chosen people means some type of privilege that they have to look down on other people. So that is rebuked by Jesus and John the Baptist. But the Gentiles, people like us, we can be presumptuous. We can just think that we're just like the Israelites and there's no difference. No, there is a difference. We shouldn't be presumptuous. So what else do these, how else does this, uh, these genealogies apply for us? Well, what we see is that when we come to the New Testament, what does it begin with? begins with a genealogy, exactly. And so the, the genealogies of Chronicles, as I said, they're poking at the New Testament and in fact they lead us straight into the first chapter of the New Testament and there's an overlap between what we find in Chronicles and what we find in Matthew chapter 1 because the book of Chronicles leads us straight to Jesus Christ. Because when Jesus comes... He comes to complete the mission of Israel. He comes to be the true Israelite. And so he comes, he is baptised along with repentant Israel. He then goes out into the desert for how long? 40 days, like Israel was in the wilderness for 40 years. And when he's in the desert for 40 days, he's tempted and he responds with all of the responses that Israel should have given. And so the Gospels portray to us that Jesus is the true Israelite. He is the true, his other title is the son of man, which is the son of Adam. He, he, he comes as the true human. He comes as the true Israelite and he comes to fulfill Israel's mission. Jesus is the true Israel. The fulfillment of Israel is not in Israel today in the land. The fulfillment of Israel is in the person of Jesus Christ. And so Jesus is the one who lives the obedient life. He does what humanity was meant to do. He obeys God. He, he, he has that perfect life, that perfect obedience which is acceptable to his father.
He dies on the cross to take our punishment, to bring the blessings and the forgiveness and the life of God for the nations of the world. He does what Israel failed to do. He lives the obedient life. He brings the blessings, the life, the resurrection life of God, the forgiveness of sins to this world. And so this is where we as the nations of the world are to look. We're to look to Jesus. Jesus is the one who has fulfilled God's purposes for this world. Jesus is the one who brings God's forgiveness and blessing to this world. Jesus is the one who fulfills the purpose of the book of Chronicles. Now, of course, for us who are Christians, there's something else there, isn't it? And that is that we're to, we're to join in the mission. The mission for us continues. For the Israelites, they were waiting for the coming of the Messiah to bring the blessing of God, and he has. And now for us, we join into that mission. We join into that mission as, as, the, as Jesus, who fulfills this, now speaks to the world. Amen. Amen.